And now, the low post. Well, well, well. If it isn't one of our favorite NBA traditions, LeBron James stirring the pot with some passive-aggressive jabs. LeBron put the entire Lakers brain trust on notice, which is kind of funny because LeBron and his inner circle are very much members of that brain trust and played a huge role in the Lakers' decision to trade almost everything they had left for Russell Westbrook. LeBron used All-Star to take obvious passive-aggressive digs at the Lakers and Rob Polinka's passivity at the trade deadline. He even told Jason Lloyd of The Athletic that he has not closed the door on a potential return to Cleveland. Ooh. Coincidentally, LeBron's current deal expires at the same moment as Kevin Love's and before Evan Mobley's inevitable max deal kicks in. There's a window there, which is interesting because Darius Garland this season has talked openly about the young Cavs building a legacy separate from LeBron and how proud they are of that. And you can rest assured, by the way, that up and down the Cavs organization, they are proud of that too. I've even seen some very plugged-in reporters say the Cavs might not be stoked about the possibility, the theoretical possibility of reuniting with LeBron. Let's just say I'm a little skeptical about that. You're telling me the Cavs, the Cleveland Cavaliers of Cleveland, would turn down a chance to add LeBron to Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen if they can do it with straight cap space without giving up any picks, anything. They're going to turn their noses up at the LeBron hometown reunion tour because their young core is pretty damn good. I'll believe that when I see it. The part where they would have to draft LeBron's son, Bronny, that's a little trickier. Right now, Bronny would not be eligible for the draft until 2024, a year after LeBron's deal with the Lakers expires. That could make, could make the 2023-24 season like a gap year for LeBron if he's really determined to play with his son in the next season, 2024-25, if Bronny is in the NBA then. Is LeBron really changing teams in the interim for that one gap year? LeBron is, of course, eligible for an extension with the Lakers this summer, and everything he said and did this week in Cleveland should be taken as a clear message to the Lakers brass. Show me a reason to extend. But yes, if the stars align, the Cavs and lots of other teams would happily, happily sign LeBron for a potential farewell season. LeBron is, duh, still really freaking good and will still be really freaking good then. He makes everyone around him better. And imagine the box office of having LeBron in his potential retirement season. Holy smokes. Owners enjoy making money almost as much, if not more, than they enjoy winning. And that point about money brings us back to the Lakers. I can't pretend to know what LeBron wants to do in 2023 or this summer or 2024, whenever he's going to make his contractual decisions, if he even knows. All I can do is talk to people and read the tea leaves as best I can. And my best guess today, in early 2022, is that LeBron would prefer not to leave the Lakers. Los Angeles is his home now. I'm betting he prefer to stay there. LeBron's obvious frustration with Palinka, with the Lakers doing nothing at the trade deadline, with the Lakers' obvious concerns about going too deep into the luxury tax, that is probably for now, for now, more a push for action this summer than it is a signal that he's got one foot out the door to Cleveland or wherever else. That's the point Brian Windhorst made in his very astute analysis on ESPN.com Monday. Windy also smartly brought up the 2018 season, which was LeBron's last season in Cleveland, when LeBron very obviously, let's say, dialed back his intensity in the month before the trade deadline and what became obvious, the Cavs roster was not working. Remember when the Cavs, by the way, had Dwayne Wade and Derrick Rose? Good times. 
uh, like it was not subtle. Wendy said you had to watch carefully to notice it, which is very polite of Wendy. You did not have to look carefully to notice it. LeBron's dispirited performance in those weeks inspired the Cavs to trade half their team. And it kind of worked. They made the finals again, but they were overmatched by the Golden State juggernaut. The Warriors swept them. And you know what? It was all worth it. A conference title still means something. Making the finals is cool. It's really cool, actually. You're in the national spotlight all by yourself. And you never know when an injury might strike the other team. Look what happened with the Raptors the next season. That finals also gave us maybe LeBron's all-time best game in game one. 51 points on 19 of 32 shooting. 19 of 32 going up against Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala. Eight rebounds, eight assists. Clutch basket after clutch basket after clutch basket. Go look at the game log. It's crazy in what became an overtime loss for the Cats. A game they might have won if not for George Hill missing a potential go-ahead free throw and then J.R. Smith committing maybe the all-time brain fart in NBA history. Some well-meaning people even argued that season that LeBron's, again, let's be polite, that LeBron's blah play before the trade deadline should have in some way helped his MVP case because by withholding his very, very best effort, he had pushed the team to make moves that they needed to make. I found that argument, frankly, ridiculous, but it was out there. Anyway, whereas the Cavs did a ton making over their whole team that season, the Lakers responded to their struggles this season by doing nothing. And maybe Rob Polinka was right to hold on to the Lakers' 2027 first-round pick instead of flipping it for John Wall. And by the way, I've heard the same stuff that Stephen A. Smith has said, that Rich Paul and Clutch did not, not push the Lakers to make that specific deal for John Wall. That does not mean that James and Davis were happy with the Lakers doing nothing overall or with Rob Polinka's messaging around the Lakers doing nothing, which we'll get back to. Interestingly, a little tidbit, I've also heard that the Rockets floated the idea of a 2027 pick swap with the Lakers instead of outright trading for the Lakers pick. Those discussions never got far enough for anything firm to be on the table. The idea of the swap was out there, though, and the Lakers did not seem much interested in doing that, according to my sources. That's fine. Whatever. I personally would have, I've said this before, I personally would have investigated maybe flipping Westbrook, THT, and that first round pick for John Wall and Eric Gordon. Give me Eric Gordon on this team next to LeBron. I'm not even sure that was really brought up. Maybe it was not realistic at all. Anyway, Polinka and the Lakers decided that nothing on the table now was worth giving up that first round pick. Maybe that's not unreasonable. The Lakers season already seemed borderline unsalvageable at the trade deadline, and it seems even less salvageable now with Anthony Davis out a month or whatever it is. They're not getting Jeremy Grant or Harrison Barnes with that package of THT, a first-round pick, and Kendrick Nunn. Is Eric Gordon or Thaddeus Young or Terrence Ross saving your season if you can even match salary properly to get those guys? The Lakers almost kind of bet against their ability to save this season and on their ability to remake the team in time to save the next season. And the pressure is on this summer. They can still trade that 2027 pick. And by then, they'll also be able to trade a 2029 first-round pick. Westbrook's deal, bam, suddenly an expiring contract. By the way, the same would have been true of John Wall's deal. Look, James is obviously frustrated by the Lakers doing nothing at the deadline and by Rob Palenka's messaging around it. Palenka told reporters after the deadline that he had kept James and AD informed on potential trades and that quote there's alignment there right after that our dave McMenamin came on tv reporting the next day via a source familiar with lebron and ad's thinking that it was quote totally false 
that AD and LeBron signed off on the Lakers doing nothing at the trade deadline. Whoops. It's possible to read all that generously, by the way, that all Polinka was saying was he had kept Davis and LeBron informed and that they remained in alignment in the big picture. He said, here's what's on the table, blah, blah. We all are on the same page. That Everything's copacetic. And that, of course, everyone, all three of us are frustrated that there was no deal to be made. Even in that reading, something was lost in translation, and that's not great. The less generous reading is a little bit worse for the Lakers. But just remember this. Always remember this. Instead of trading everything for Westbrook, the Lakers had a deal on the table to trade Kyle Kuzma and Montrezl Harrell to the Kings for Buddy Heald. In that scenario, they would have kept Contavious Caldwell-Pope, very useful player, kept their own 2021 first-round pick, could be an interesting young guy, became Isaiah Jackson, kept Dennis Schroeder, maybe, maybe, depending on a couple of things, and in addition, they could have re-signed one of THT and Alex Crusoe. Remember Alex Crusoe? Pretty good player. I wrote at the time that I would have gone that Buddy Heald route instead of trading for Westbrook because it was very predictable exactly how and why Westbrook would be an awkward fit. Just think about this. Kuzma's having a breakout year in Washington. Caruso was like a borderline defensive player of the year candidate before he got injured. Is it possible that Kuzma or Caruso, given their play this season, that either one of those guys by himself would have been more valuable to the Lakers straight up than Westbrook has been? It's not crazy. That's all I'm saying. It's not crazy. Part of the reason, and just part of it, maybe a tiny part, maybe a big part, maybe a medium-sized part, but part of it, the Lakers chose the Westbrook route, was that it appeared that it might be cheaper. It might save them money. That was before we knew that Schroeder's market had like completely cratered to nothing. But here's the thing. Do the math. The collective 21-22 salaries of Buddy Heald, that number 22 pick, Dennis Schroeder, KCP, and Alex Caruso, given what he's making with the Bulls, add up to like three or four million less than what Westbrook, THT, and Kendrick Nunn are making. Is that a fair comparison? Maybe not. Again, everyone assumed a bigger number for Schroeder than what happened. The healed path that I outlined doesn't include anything for the taxpayer mid-level, which they used on Kendrick Nunn, or any money for THT. But with added depth in that in that path, maybe the Lakers don't even need to use the MLE, the mid-level. Maybe that would annoy LeBron, but still. And in fairness, in that Buddy Heald scenario, resigning both THD and Caruso would have been like $6 million more than they ended up paying in the Westbrook path that they actually took and something like $20 million in tax payments. And that is a lot. But two things on that. These are the Los Angeles Lakers. I understand the Buss family does not have some giant non-Laker source of outside wealth, but the Lakers themselves are a giant source of wealth. I would be hesitant to even guess what valuation the Lakers might fetch in an auction-style sales process. Look, it's not my job to count other people's money and, and judge people on their spending and all this. But all I'm saying is if you're the Lakers, the Lakers and you're trying to win the title with LeBron at age 37, and you've already traded everything for Anthony Davis, and you've traded everything you had left after that for Russ, maybe it shouldn't be an either-or decision between Caruso and Taylor Horton Tucker. And number two, if it does have to be an either-or decision between Caruso and Taylor Horton Tucker, you made the wrong decision. Caruso is a better fit for this roster. The Lakers seem to have dismissed with the entire concept of fit in dumping all their 3 and D guys that mesh so well with LeBron 
particularly in the bubble title run. And by the way, one of those guys was Danny Green. It goes back to that. And I actually liked the Danny Green plus a first-round pick that became Jaden McDaniels, I think, for Dennis Schroeder trade. I thought, well, that's a great bridge to get a young, dynamic ball handler to play next to LeBron. The same kind of role that Russ is theoretically filling this season. Schroeder was coming off a six-man-of-the-year type season uh, where he was a candidate for that award. Danny Green's getting old. I thought, smart bet. You have limited resources. That's kind of a good bet to make. I was totally wrong. Like that, That trade kind of blew up in their faces. But it's done, and everything after that is done too. The Lakers have to make a ton of decisions this summer, and they have to make those decisions work for next season's Lakers in a way that makes LeBron happy. He doesn't care about the 2028 Lakers or the 2029 Lakers. He cares about this season's Lakers and next season's Lakers, and the pressure is on. And with that, let's bring in the one and only Jeff Van Gundy to talk about the biggest questions for the rest of the season. All right, to kick off the second quote-unquote half of the NBA season and answer, I think, my seven big questions for the season, one of the best to ever do it. I know he's coming off the high of All-Star Weekend, the number one All-Star super fan, our go-to analyst on ESPN and ABC, Mr. Jeff Van Gundy. How are you, sir? Doing great. How's everything? Just coming, just, I'm still... I, I'm, I still have goosebumps from the dunk contest. I still, it's still, I haven't, I haven't gone to sleep since. There are certain things that should just die a natural death. The dunk contest is one and the college handshake line is two. If those two just died a natural death, sport would be better. Oh, you just went right into the big controversy of the weekend. I am not a college basketball person, so I would say I did a cursory amount of research on what in the hell happened between Jawan Howard and whatever the Wisconsin coaches' names are. I saw the mush. It was not a punch. It was not even a slap. It was a mush. I think a mush is the proper word. So what? So this is – I don't watch college basketball much. They do this after every game. Is this a thing? Every game you got to do a handshake line? Yes, it, it, it left in COVID. Some uh, conferences like the Pac-12 um, still don't do it again. But some, and, and these are coaches I have unbelievable respect for. There's some like Tom Izzo who said it would be a farce if they got rid of the um, handshake line. And my thought on it is, see, that's the illusion of sportsmanship. It's not sportsmanship. How you compete is where you determine if a guy's a great sportsman or not, not if he walks up and shakes your hand. And I, I would say this is that um, when I look at that, like what if you know a guy's cheating in your league? You have to shake his hand because he beat your butt, but he cheated to do it previous to the game. So you have to you know, shake his hand. People say, well, what about hockey? They bang and bump. And then they have that handshake line. And so we're supposed to signal that that's great virtue, that they're allowed to fight during the game, but then they shake hands after the game. That's who you want to emulate. And so I, I just find the whole thing, um, you know, silly that you have to, why not be like the NBA? You wave to the guy or not. You get together with the people you want to congratulate or not. I just think we have this such a sophomoric thought on what is sportsmanship and we talk we focus so much on what happens after the game instead of what 
we should focus on, which is how you conduct yourself during the game. Uh, what was your go-to? I wrote a whole thing a few years ago, and then we voiced something on on what was then the jump about the coach, the post-game coach wave. I I said that Mike Budenholzer had the best post-game coach wave to the other coach. It was it's the weirdest NBA tradition, and we made a sort of fun video thing. Brett Brown had a really like friendly coach wave. You just, it's so it's you get the serious look on your face. You wave like, yeah, I see you. You see me. We've made eye contact. Our hands are in the air at the same time. Now we're going to go to our respective locker rooms. Did you do that after every game? Were you a wave enthusiast? I was not. Hey, listen, back then, you didn't even necessarily shake hands after a series. The only series I remember shaking hands at right after was the last one I had with Jerry Sloan because it was, uh, to me, the uh, I had such great respect for everything that he did and how he coached and all that. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's really evolved into the wave. I think the wave is a good thing. I think it acknowledges coach to coach that, um, you know, you have difficult jobs, one team won, one team lost, but there's respect for the position of the coach without, you know, and then some coaches, you know, if you'd worked with them, you may come together, but it was, it allowed you to do whatever you felt uh, was best, not this, you know, cursory, like, I don't know. It, it looks like fourth grade uh, CYO basketball to me where you have to go up and down and say, good game, good game, good game, good game. You know, uh, I don't know. It, it makes no sense. So so I actually think – now, I agree with you. I'm going to sound like old man yelling at cloud. I'm going to sound actually like my father, who's almost 80. I think the fact that they allow fighting in hockey – I mean, I know you get a penalty for it. I don't, I, I'm, out, I'm a little out of the loop with my hockey knowledge, but the fact that they just are like, oh, it's just part of the game – that we all just fight for 10 minutes. We all stand around and watch two guys fight until they get tired. It's it's That's sort of crazy to me. I do think the hockey handshake gets it right because it's not after every game, I don't think. It's just like, okay, we've just battled in a long playoff series. We've all seen each other for two weeks. Let's acknowledge, particularly after a good series, let's acknowledge that like we gave everything we had. We, we, we were sick of each other, but we respect each other. I think that's fine not after every game and I have to say coach one of my secret shames as a basketball fan and a human being that I am no longer ashamed about I now I now admit it out loud and I'm okay with it 11 year old me or 12 year old me thought it was really cool when the Pistons walked off the court and refused to shake the Bulls hands as the game was ending when the Bulls were ending the Pistons ran atop the Eastern Conference I just thought I didn't care. I wasn't offended by it. I understand people are still mad about it. I, at age 44, I still kind of think it's a badass move. Well, so we all have these unwritten rules in sports that I think are, are semi-comical. But staying on the court through the end of the game probably should be one. Fair, so, fair. You know, to me, but I don't care that they didn't shake, shake their hands. They didn't like them. They didn't respect them. And... I find it fraudulent when you, you know, you're forced to, you know, comply with some edict that says you must shake hands or you're a bad sportsman. Like I, I thought leaving the game, the court early was, was bad, but I didn't, I still don't care. Like, you know, and the whole thing that started the Michigan 
Wisconsin thing was, you know, uh, the Wisconsin coach called a timeout with 15 seconds. Like, that's his right to me. Like, I never felt like there, there's no etiquette or unwritten rules. If, if, if the game is 40 minutes, play 40 minutes. Shoot, like, if you want to and score up 15 if you get a transition opportunity. I don't – I mean, it's on me as a coach to get my team to stop you, not for you to stop yourself. So all these unwritten rules to me – I'm against. Let's transition to the NBA of 2022. I have seven big questions for you, really, because that's I have I could give you 20, but I don't think we're gonna have time for 20. So here's my seven that I picked. Are you ready for a big question for the second half of the season? Number one. Let's go. Who won the Nets Sixers mega trade, and which of those teams do you think has the better chance to win the Eastern Conference? Well, I think. There's some trades where both teams lose. There's some trades where there is a clear winner and, and a loser, and some of that is circumstance. But in this case, I thought both teams won if everyone's healthy in place. So I, I thought the Nets, if you're going to trade uh, a star player like they did in Harden, they got a tremendous basketball player in Simmons who was a great fit with their team. He solved some issues that they have as far as weaknesses. Um, so defensively rebounding and transition pace, I, I think they improved dramatically. Uh, I thought Drummond to be able to either be the starter or backup, although I don't think he's, you know, like a great player. He's an upgrade over what they have. And in conjunction with LaMarcus Aldridge, I think it's really good. I think uh, uh, Seth Curry and that shooting, even though he's undersized, um, I think he's an excellent offensive player, not just a spot-up shooter, but adept at running handoffs, pick and rolls. And I think his presence allows Patty Mills to maybe reduce his uh, minutes to a more manageable amount. So I thought they hit an absolute uh, home run. And that's not even mentioning the picks. Um, but just on-court fit this year, I thought they did a fabulous job. I don't think you could do better. And well, then Especially on-court on fit this year, especially if the guy you traded was like, yeah, I don't feel like trying really hard in the basketball games anymore. So there's, there's that part of it too. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree. And then on the other hand, you had a guy who wasn't going to play for you. Um and you got from that a guy that Daryl Morey is um, has worked with and is comfortable with. And like if he plays up to the level he can and he figures out how to play with Embiid on both ends of the floor, then, you know, they came out of it better as well. So uh, this is a rare case where I think both teams won. I love – I have to give Daryl Morey credit for this. I even joked, and this was not an original joke, that I couldn't wait to see the James Harden, Daryl Morey, Shawshank Redemption on the beach reunion hug after all these years apart. And I didn't actually think they would film it. And then they filmed James Harden getting off the private jet and who's there waiting for the embrace? Daryl Morey. They leaned right in to the Shawshank Redemption reunion thing. Um, I've talked a lot about how 
uh, the Sixers, the the fit between Harden and Embiid and the surrounding roster. So I don't want to belabor my thoughts on that, but I want to I want to get yours. What's your number one concern or the first time we see James Harden and Embiid on the floor together? What is your X's and O's mind going to go to sort of like this is what I want to see in terms of how they fit or what might be an issue? What what is your what is your eye going to look to? Well, I think playing with a postman is going to be different for Harden. You know, he he played with Dwight Howard, even though Dwight Howard obviously is not nearly as skilled um, as Embiid, but it didn't work great. And Embiid's going to, this is Embiid's team. Um, And that's going to be different for Harden because you could say in Brooklyn, he, he was sharing the spotlight, but in Houston, you know, every move was built around him. Every decision was uh, based on what was best for him. And now the level of sacrifice to play with a postman and the intricacies to be able to play with a postman. Because Embiid's not your classic, like, Clint Capella type where he's going to sprint out and and run a million uh, screens on the ball and and is this elite roller uh, to the rim. That's not really how he plays. So I think that's going to take time. But I think the bigger issue is Harden's um, defensive mindset is to switch everything. And that'll be different. Like, who wins that battle between um, Harden wanting to switch everything, making Embiid, you know, cover more on the floor, or – Dan Berg, Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid, which is, you know, no, drive over or fight through and try to get back in front so I can drop and clog the lane. I, I, that, to me, is the more interesting battle than trying to put two elite offensive talents on the floor to see how it works. I, I'm much more interested to see where their defense goes um, because I think eventually they'll figure out how to play well offensively. Is there a middle ground or is this is this a stupid question because so many of the ball screens are going to involve Embiid anyway, but is there a middle ground where we say, okay, we can switch everything one to four, all the stuff off the ball, any one, four, two, three, three, four, but with Embiid, we're sticking with our traditional defense. Is, that, is there a middle ground where we can meet there or does that just not really accomplish anything? No, you could. I mean, again, I think sometimes we always confuse – what's easiest with what is best. So certainly they could, they could switch everything one through four, but is that best for them? Uh, I think Dan Burke and Doc Rivers have a better feel for that than I would. And certainly they know their team better than Harden knows. But to me, this is where the power of personality comes in. Um, you know, early on, everybody's going to be on their best behavior. Over time, that's where you're going to see the commitment to team success by what alterations everyone's willing to make for what they would rather do than what is best for the group. I am fascinated, not just this year, but going forward um, to what they finally come to and the sacrifices each player of the best players 
are willing to make for the betterment of the team. It, it's, it's fascinating to watch because every player knows what to say, but they don't always follow through on, on that with, with actions that show that they care only about winning. I cannot wait to watch the Sixers. I'm going to devour every – the first 10 Harden and Bede games, I'm going to be just devouring them. I can't wait. But we've talked a lot about the Sixers, and I don't think quite as much about the Nets because there are just so many obvious questions about sort of who, who's playing and what's – so let's make some assumptions and then talk quickly about the Nets fit. Let's assume – just let's just assume through no reporting, let's just assume Kyrie can play every game in the playoffs. Let's just assume that. Let's assume Joe Harris is out for the season. Just let's just write him off. He's gone. Um, and and let's assume Ben Simmons is more or less the same player as he was when we last saw him. Maybe not at, in the in the game seven mental fragility state, but still not a jump shooter. Not super excited about getting to the foul line, etc. And then I, then I would ask you sort of my 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 structural concern about that version of the Nets is. They're both too small now, having added Goran Dragic, another small guard who, had, who fits a need for them for sure. And they have four sort of smallish, let's say, offense-first guards now in Dragic, Seth Curry, Patty Mills, and Kyrie Irving, who are arguably four of like their top seven or eight players now. And then on the other hand, they're too big with all these centers who can't play together. They have, you know, Dayron Sharp, Blake Griffin, Nick Claxton, Andre Drummond. And you mentioned Drummond specifically – and whether he starts or comes off the bench, that's interesting to me because we've seen Simmons with Dwight Howard. We've seen Simmons with paint-bound, rim-running centers, and it's been an awkward fit. Like, that just didn't work for Philly. So my long that's a long-winded way of asking, like, what's the best lineup for this team? Like, if you're closing games, obviously it depends on matchups, but obviously we know it's Kyrie, KD, Simmons. Do we have Aldridge out there? Can you afford to play Kyrie with both Curry and Dragic, or is that too small and not enough defense? Or is it such crazy shooting that they're just going to outscore everybody? Can we throw James Johnson in there in one of the spots as like a tweener, playmaker, switchy big? I kind of like the Durant Johnson Simmons trio with Kyrie and another shooter. Like, what is it all of it? Like, what do you like and, and not like about how this team actually looks? I think. You know, just to go to the James Johnson, you know, that's a non-shooter. Simmons is a non-shooter. Um, but he can play make a little. Like, that's he can do the yeah, handoff no, no, stuff. Can, but that, yeah. but you're still gonna, he's still going to be open. Like, that's the bottom line. And, you know, same with Simmons. You know, and they're both going to struggle at the free throw line um, to some degree. I think the closing lineup to me um, is going to be, you know, Simmons – and Durant at the four and five, and then pick three wing players. It may be Kessler Edwards uh, for another, you know, you know, more size and two other guys. It may be, you know, the three smallish guards. I think the problem maybe maybe Cam maybe Cam Thomas is ready. May, I'm not sure he's ready defensively. Maybe he's ready. Bruce yeah. Brown. That's it. Bruce Brown's another non-shooter, right? Is that your concern with yeah, him? Yeah, it, it's it's just to me Simmons is going to eat up those those minutes, but like it may be LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, you know, the Nets have been a switch heavy team too, because of the Harden Durant. Um, that's what they prefer. And again, it all sounds good. Oh, we'll switch one through five until 
Well, if LaMarcus Aldridge, you're saying he's going to guard, you know, um, what, Jimmy Butler, uh, Tyler Hero, like, nah, that, that makes no sense. So there are some vulnerabilities to the Nets defensively. Um, obviously, at full strength, they're like a dynamic offensive team. Um, and then, you know, like because they're a dynamic offensive team, are you actually committed to Simmons as a closing guy? I, maybe you're not. Maybe the hack of Ben comes back out and you're taking the ball out of Durant's hands that way. Um, I, I think there's so many things that they've got to try to work through in these next 20 or so games, uh, depending on when he comes back. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch where he actually is because – in your long-winded question to me, you made about 10 assumptions, and we yes. don't know if any of them are, are factual. We don't know if Dragic, what he has left. Um, we don't know about Kyrie Irving. You know, I, I, I was going through a stat yesterday. Uh, in the last five years or so, you know, the teams that Kyrie's played for have had similar records, whether he's played or not played. Um, you know, and, and how do, what does that mean for the playoffs, right? So, you know, it's just I, – I just think there's so many questions, but I think they're positioned better today than they were with Harden to be a championship-level uh, team. I am begging – I've already been begging the basketball gods for a Nets Sixers playoff series, and I hadn't even thought about, even amid all that begging to the basketball gods, beseeching the basketball gods, I had not even thought about it until you just mentioned it, the potential spectacle of Doc Rivers in Philadelphia going to a hack-a-bend strategy in a Nets Sixers play. I'm just, I, can't, I can't even contain my excitement. Let's go to the next big question. Big question number two. Are we all just ignoring that the Miami Heat are the actual favorites in the Eastern Conference? Let me give you some vitals on the Heat. Eighth in offense, sixth in defense, fifth in net rating. Their four best players, Coach, what I would consider their four best players, Butler, Lowry, Adebayo, Tyler Hero, have played 59 minutes together the entire season. Their starters have allowed 92 points per 100 possessions, which is like 10 points better than the best defense in the entire league. They are, Kevin Pelton did this deep dive for me. They are third in points per possession allowed against the top 15 offenses in the NBA. There are only two teams in the entire league who have defended better by the numbers against the best offenses, the top 15 offense versus the bottom 15 offenses, Miami and Dallas. So they have all the markers of an elite defensive team. So my my question is, are we all sleeping? Oh, you on said them? Miami. You said Miami. Who was the first team? Dallas. No, Dallas and who? Because Miami. Miami was third. No, that's it. One of two teams. Those are the only two teams that have oh. defended against the top 15 offenses allowed fewer points per possession than they have against the bottom 15. Those are the only two. First of all, you just glossed over that Dallas is one of the two teams. I didn't gloss over it. No, no. But I mean, think back to where Dallas was defensively. Just a year ago. I mean, their improvement at that end of the floor, I mean, it's been mitigated by their offensive disimprovement, but their improvement at that end of the floor, like Jason Kidd, is he a savant? Like, really? Like, 
what a job he's done with that grouping because they're not an overly talented defensive team. I mean, Finney Smith, I like. Um, they're bigs try, but Jalen Brunson's not a gifted defender. Doncic is big, but not a gifted defender. I mean, this is incredible, the improvement that Dallas has made. And then Miami, you know, so much is unknown anymore about how much, to me, you should value the regular season. Because, like you said, you don't even know – the guys don't even play together because everybody's out, you know, personal reasons, um, fake injuries, real injuries. Like, you don't really get a great feel for how teams fit together. The one thing I am convinced about Miami, though, no matter who they play in a game, no matter how much Butler may be out, Lowry may be out, Duncan Robinson shooting awful, like – all I know is they're going to win or they're going to play competitive basketball. Like that's what you do know because their depth, their quality of depth that they, they develop over the course of time um, gives them a fighting chance. Um, and, and I am, I couldn't be more impressed with their players and their coaches, the way they go about things um, truly makes me like the NBA when some things are trending to where I don't like it sometimes. So thank you, Heat. So the Heat have four more home games than road games uh, left in the season. They are, by all the nerd sites, like a 60% bet to get the number one seed in the East right now. Um, obviously, the seedings are going to be crucial, like Milwaukee's fifth. If you get the number one seed, you might end up facing Brooklyn in the first round. Like, there's all sorts of variables. Like, but but that's what they profile as. So my question is: Here's the question I have about the Heat, and and if there is any sort of reluctance to just anoint them favorites, is is this? And I'll put it to you: Can they score enough in the half court to win? three three or four playoff series. That's my question because, you know, with Bam, Butler, Tucker out there, the spacing is just going to be so-so. We can go through all the mechanics of it, but that's the their 13th in half-court offense right now. That's per cleaning the glass. They're 18th in points per possession after opponent-made baskets. They're killing it after misses and in transition and all that. But, you know, the playoffs do slow down. Coach, can they score enough in the half-court to win the whole thing? Great question. You know, Hero is going to have to be great. He's going to have to be great. And Lowry's going to have to have um, a flashback uh, to regain uh, what I think, you know, he was once capable of in the half court. You know, Butler's going to do, you know, he's going to make sound decisions, good playmaker, get to the free throw line. Um, you know, but their their lack of, like offensive explosive talent in the half court, you know, certainly could bite him. But I, I think, I think hero is really that good. Now I do. I think he is uh, a really, really special player and uh, he's going to have to be special for them uh, to think about winning it all, you know, flashing back to the bubble when they got to the finals, you know, how good he was at that point in time. And during that run, um, obviously less last year, not as productive this year, been in and out of the lineup, but you know, really good. So I would say hero would have to be, you know, 
if they keep bringing him off the bench, he's still going to have to be a 32 to 35 minute a game player and be, you know, really productive. And Lowry's going to have to, um, you know, find that half court, you know, pull up, going, pull up three, going to his left. You know, Lowry's been hurt by the, the change in the way the game's been officiated. And uh, uh, what playoff officiating looks like uh, remains to be seen. I'm really interested to watch their last 20 games if they can get their whole team together because, as you know, their whole thing is we make up for whatever spacing limitations we might have with, number one, sheer force of will and physicality, and number two, IQ. We have guys that can make magic in small spaces. We have infinite pick-and-roll combinations with Lowry and Butler screening for each other, inverted pick-and-rolls for Bam. We have the Duncan Robinson offense over here on the side that is like a whole offense unto itself. And they've only kind of scratched the surface of having all those guys on the floor together. Um, so I, I'm very curious about that. And if it, 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 I think they're a better half-court offense team at, at full throttle than we've seen so far. I do think this question is a fair question, but I know I know this man. Sleep on the heat at your peril. Like I think I think they can if they they're the it's it's just like the bubble. They're going to take a lot of threes. They're also going to give up a lot of threes. They're like the Bucks on defense. They give up a ton of threes, kind of on purpose. If they get hot for two weeks and they have the shooters to get hot, they're going to be really hard to beat. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. And with a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. I went. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Next question. You ready? Yeah. Are you worried about Milwaukee's defensive slippage? The Bucks are now down to 12th in points allowed per possession. They're 14th in points allowed per possession against those top 15 offenses. And this has been their bread and butter, as you know. Attack the rim on offense, defend the rim on defense, and be an elite defensive team without Brooke Lopez. And they've been switching more and blitzing more. And that kind of that they're starting to sort of leak oil in those schemes. Ibaka, is that really the solution to their problems? Coach, 
Is there a good enough defensive team in here to repeat as champions? And are they are they your favorites to come out of the East right now? Well, I think the defense uh, is worrisome. And I think, you know, the Lopez loss, particularly if he's not able to make it back, is extremely uh, problematic. And again, I don't know as much about what Serge Ibaka has left. Um, you know, so many of these guys now, you know, they don't play that much. And so to try to guess, I think I love the competitive nature of Portis, but he's not as gifted a, a defender as, you know, Lopez. And they're having to play him against starters more and play him longer minutes. I think uh, Grayson Allen uh, is a better athlete than we think, but not a, not a great, you know, defender. And so they have more places you can go and attack. Um, and it'll be interesting to me to see what the Bucks decide to do, uh, who they want to play. Uh, I was a little surprised. I, I know DiVincenzo was shooting the ball terribly, but I liked his uh, overall defensive competitiveness. They decided to move on from that. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm really interested to see if they can correct that uh, because sometimes your, your defensive talent just isn't good enough. Now, you know Holiday's a great defender and they have good size, but – you know, can you be an elite defense without Brooke Lopez? I would say the numbers say no, and it's going to be a lot dependent on what Ibaka can end up doing. I was with you on that trade, and Bucks fans were not happy with me. I didn't love it um, for the Bucks just because. And look, I had a lot of Bucks fans come at me and say, "You haven't watched Divincenzo this year." Yes, I have. I know he's shooting twenty eight percent from three. He can't finish a layup to save his life in traffic. He hasn't been the same guy since all the ankle injuries. I get it. I got 20 more games and another playoff round maybe to get him to round back into form. I And my counter would be, have you seen Serge Ibaka play this year for the Clippers and last year for the Clippers? Because it hasn't gone great for him either. And I want as many variations of the Giannis at center lineup as I can get. If, if I'm uncertain about Brooke Lopez. Now, they're optimistic about Brooke Lopez coming back before the end of the regular season and his condition, but, like, back injuries are what they are. You just you just don't know. Um, you mentioned the and, numbers. And, and we have to remember, like, the Connaughton injury. Like, right after. Right after right, that. You know, that's buzzard's luck for the, for the Bucks. I mean, that, you know, he and his shooting toughness, you know, he's not a, a – a tremendously gifted one-on-one -on -one defender, but he's smart and he's tough and he's in the right spots and he knows how to play with those guys. And his confidence was at another level uh, this year. Um, really good competitor. So, you know, they're, they're down those two guys now. And I think that makes it really challenging. What that's, I mean, I said this uh, at the day of the trade deadline, one of the reasons I would not have done that Ibaka trade probably is, is as, if I take one other wing injury, I'm now really short. And then, like, people get hurt all the time. That's what happens. But, again, maybe Serge has the Nick Batum thing where in a new situation, he all of a sudden is like old Serge Ibaka again. It's like, oh, where's this guy been? Um, the numbers, you mentioned the numbers. The numbers say a lot of things, and I can't quite figure them out on this one, honestly. So they're 12th in defense. There's been slippage. With Giannis on the floor, they're like a top three or four defense. By the way, 
he's got to be in defensive player of the year conversation again, right? Like, like teams are shooting 50% at the rim with Giannis as the closest defender. That's the fourth uh, lowest such mark in the league. Claxton, Gobert, and Isaiah Hartenstein are the only ones ahead of Giannis. Um, and with their big three on the floor, so Giannis, Holiday, Middleton, they're like a top two, top three defense. So I, I don't c- kind of know what to make of that. But the other thing with DiVincenzo and Connaughton, in all the Brook Lopez noise, the piece that I'm almost like more curious about how this affects them, and I'm curious what you think, they never really found a P.J. Tucker again. And those guys are hard to find. They To round out those Giannis at center lineups, like another like straight-up four-sized guy who could switch a lot, those are very rare. They hoped Semi Ojale would be that guy or maybe t- had a 10% chance of turning out to be their version of that guy. He failed. Now they're, those Giannis at center lineups are really small now. Does that concern you at all, or am I overthinking it? No, it absolutely does. Particularly, you're talking about match. You know, it may only be for one matchup. Maybe it's the Durant matchup if you run into that. Um, I think also, too, the thing that at both ends of the floor, the key to me is Middleton. Middleton was great last year. Great. And I love him. I love him as a guy. I love him as, like, the progress he's shown throughout his career. But he hasn't had as good a year this year. Not even close. And can he regain that, you know, like, go-to guy down the stretch of fourth quarters, right? Um, I think it's absolutely imperative. Above all the other things, you know, like, to me, it's, Middleton regaining his like top form and Brooke Lopez getting back. Um, other than that, you know, they've got, like you mentioned, they, you know, the Connaughton, DiVincenzo, George Hill is out a lot. You know, what can they count on him? You know, can he stay healthy? I mean, they have a lot of things that need to go right for them to have enough quality players to run the gauntlet all the way through. Yeah, they're kind of my de facto East favorite now, just given the uncertainty of everything else around them. But I'm less convinced of that today than I was two weeks ago. I would still pick them, I think, but I wouldn't feel good about it. Just a couple other things. They're 11 and 14 overall against 500 teams. By the way, they're fifth in the East right now. I understand that only three games separates fifth and first, but they're fifth in the East with the hardest remaining schedule in the league. Like, I... Where again the seedings are going to be crucial in terms of first and second round matchups. So I'm just curious where the Bucks finish up. Let's. You stay. know what though? I think having a hard end end of the schedule or end of the season schedule for them is great. I think it's great. I think you know they're not going to be able to coast. Like they're going to have to get it together individually and collectively. I think it may not be best for their seed. It, I think it is best for their ability to get to where they want to again this year, because I don't care if they're home court or not in the first round, I'm picking them. Oh, for sure. Right. Like I don't care who they, they match up with. Like I, you know, and who's fourth right now today. Who would Cleveland. Cleveland. Right. That's a, that's a walkover. I, and I love what Cleveland's done and, and Kevin love in particular. Like I love his Renaissance as an off the bench player and they have a lot of good stories and they've done a 
a tremendous job. JB Bickerstaff, their players, right? But that's a walkover, you know. So I, I don't Milwaukee may drop in seed, but I think it's important that they're pushed and uh that they, you know, are forced to get it together. Big question number four. Tied atop the East with the Miami Heat on a five-game winning streak against mostly bad teams that they really needed to get to stabilize their season are the Chicago Bulls, who without Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso have slipped to 20th in total defense after being a top-10 team when they were at full throttle, at fully, fully formed. So the question about the Bulls, Coach, is, again, this is a team that's tied for first. Like, we, we should be talking about them in this conversation. What is their real level of defense when they're healthy? And is it high enough for them to have a realistic chance to win the East? Well, we also, you know, the, the season-long injury to Patrick Williams. And he might come back. Right. And so, and then they had Green was out for a while. I mean, they were really decimated there for a while. I mean, and they were you know, they were, they were just terrible defensively because they had terrible defensive players. And, and, and this is when Vucevic is the anchor of your defense at the five. So, you know, he's at best an average defender. DeRozan and Levine, um, I think, are smarter defenders than maybe they once were, but neither are thought of as a – just put him on him and, and, you know, we can shut his water off. So you do need Ball and Caruso and Patrick Williams to give them enough balance because they played so well. And DeRozan's had such a spectacular offensive year. And Levine's had an under-the-radar, you know, year because of DeRozan's coming there in emergence. And then his injury is problematic, you know, that – um, where he's been off and on with the knee. So they do need those guys back to give them a puncher's chance. Um, I think they've overachieved dramatically. Um, and I just think like they're not at the same level as Miami, you know, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, but that does not detract from what a spectacular regular season Billy Donovan and his team have had. The biggest change has been in turnovers. When they had both of those guys, they were just they, they were just pickpockets. They were just thieves on the floor. They were top five turnover rate. They are now in the bottom 10, 22nd in turnover rate. And since January 1st, they are last enforcing turnovers by a mile, by a lot. And so when those guys come back, particularly when they're both on the floor, it'd be interesting to see how that how that stabilizes. And like you said, Pat Williams, I mean, he's a defense first player. Javante Green has been fantastic for them. Uh, but just even if even if they decide, well, this year Pat Williams, he hasn't played too much. We're going to bring him off the bench. That still helps your defense and helps your depth. And if he's good enough to start, then you're thrilled about that. Um, I, and uh, and uh, to add to that, Tristan Thompson, I. What does he have left? Does he help you? Does he hurt you? Like, you know, I hate the whole buyout market. I think it's a, a sham of a rule. But it'll be interesting to see how that impacts. Is he better than Bradley? Is he, you know, like, what is it? And I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see his fit. Um, 
overall, I I kind of agree with you. I don't think they're quite good enough to beat those teams. But I mean, look, if they're if they become a top ten defense again, I think their offense, I think playoff defenses will 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 knock their offense down a peg. But a down a peg is still pretty damn good. I just they allow the most shots in the league at the rim. They're like the anti Bucks, which is not necessarily a bad thing. They allow a ton of shots at the rim and not very many threes at all. I I just. It, I, I can't quite get there with them. By the way, here are their next six games. This is going to be an awesome six or seven games for the Bulls. Atlanta, make of them what you will. I've given up trying to figure it out. Home against Memphis, at Miami, at Atlanta, home against Milwaukee, at Philly. That's a great. And then after that, they have a couple of easier ones. Then comes Cleveland, then another easy one. Utah, Phoenix, Toronto, Milwaukee. The Bulls have a super hard schedule. I think the second hardest in the league. The rest of the way, so we're going to learn a lot about the Bulls and see where they see where they end up. But like you said, great season. DeRozan has been. There just are no just beyond spectacular, particularly in crunch time, and for them to be thirty-eight and twenty-one with injuries to almost everyone, with Vucevic getting off to a really slow start. He, by the way, quietly he's playing really well and is up to a, almost a career high on two-point field goals, and. And, and the job they've all done keeping that afloat, Billy Donovan is in the coach of the year. Right? I just think that they have been, even if they slump the rest of the way, and let's say they bow out in the first round, which is possible, or just get, you know, second round and, and get rolled. I think it's been a great season for them. Oh, great. I mean, they're relevant again. It's a great basketball town, great basketball um, history, and they have hope now. And, you know, I agree with you. Like to me, what DeRozan has done, I mean, the numbers he is putting up, the consistency of play. Um, I mean, he's in like, to me, he's, he's gotta be in the top five of the MVP discussion. Just, well, this was one of my other big questions. You might as well do it. Who's the MVP. You know, I, I, I would go with Jokic probably if, if, but DeRozan and Embiid, you can make, you know, like if, if DeRozan keeps going, like I, I'm going to tell you this, like what he's doing. And some of this was with really marginal NBA players around him when they were at the zenith of their injuries. Um, what he did on a nightly basis. I mean, the game winners in those back to back games where, you know, he just bailed them out. Uh, I mean, the guy has been absolutely spectacular. And I think he's the type of guy like a Tim Duncan and Steve Nash when they were players, understated in his tremendous ability to be an exemplary teammate and help others around them navigate through tough situations and play their best. I think you heard some people in San Antonio talk about it. I think it's really apparent in – Chicago, what he's been able to uh, do with their younger guards. I, I just think because he's such a great scorer, sometimes we don't talk about just what a fabulous teammate he is, which morphs into tremendous leadership. Tim Duncan was my – of all the guys who couldn't or didn't show up for the top 75, and obviously some guys were are deceased, some guys physically couldn't be there for medical – for health reasons or whatever. It was, travel is difficult. Some guys had obligations. I was most sad that Tim Duncan wasn't there, and it was reduced to doing the ridiculous waving 
to fake fans in every direction that they had all the players who didn't come do. It's like top 10 player of all time. I understand he hates all of this fanfare. He's I I don't know what his reason was. I just want I just wanted Tim Duncan to be there. That's all. I was this, but that the whole thing was. I, I wish I had been there. It looked amazing. Yeah, I I wasn't in love with the list, but uh, congratulations to everybody. I didn't even know Tim Duncan didn't make it. He was to me the way he. I, I just I mean obviously you can look at every number and every accolade, but I think he ushered in a new way to lead. And like the supportive leadership, um, the tap on the, the Duncan tap on the head, you know, both when he was mad at a guy, tap him on the head and encourage him to do better, tap him on the head when pop was up somebody's butt. Like, uh, you know, like just like I just think like he he sort of forged a new leadership style um, in the NBA and. You know, I, I, I just don't think because he's not vocal and he's not out in front, like you just said, missing that um, top 75, you know, because he, he did it differently. Uh, I think sometimes we understate what a great leader he was. Which give me give me that. I don't want to get sidetracked, but give me your number one gripe with the list. Was it an omission? Was it someone who was on it that didn't belong on it? Like, what's the number one Jeff Van Gundy gripe? Well, well, the number one is if it's a top 75, you don't have 76. That's true. That's very fair. Yeah, like that to me is like, uh, that made no sense. Uh, giving a vote to the guys who were the top 50, I didn't agree with. Now, I, I would have, like I said on a broadcast earlier, you know who should have picked it by himself? Hubie Brown, because he's seen everybody. Like he's actually like, seen like he talked on a broadcast this year yeah when i watch sam jones i'm like you watch <laughs> sam jones like i'm listening to him and i'm like this guy should pick this list by himself and and so and then the admission for me and i know i coached him but tracy mcgrady like he he wouldn't have been on the back end of that list he would have been in like in the middle of that list um, and I just think, you know, again, so those are my three main gripes. 76, who votes, and McGrady. Uh, I had McGrady on my – I was one of the vote, non-Hubie Brown voters, and I had McGrady uh, on, on, my, on my list. Um, let's go to the – now the six. because Oh, by the way, MVP. I did my whole spiel last week. I also have Jokic um, by a little bit over Embiid and Giannis. I think those are the clear top three. DeRozan is making a really strong case for four. That's fine. I just I just keep hearing that it's ridiculous for anybody but Embiid to win it, or there's all this Jokic skepticism, and I'm looking around, I'm like, well, I, I don't I, I get that they're six in the West, and other than the Westbrook year, you gotta be top two or three really to win MVP. Well, I've always thought that was kind of dumb. Um, and they are 33 and 25. The Sixers are 35 and 23. It's a two-game difference between the Nuggets and the Sixers. You can focus on the three-seed difference, but there's a two-game difference. Their scoring margins are about the same. And obviously, uh, Porter and Murray have been out for all or most of the season. Ben Simmons has been out for most of the season. I just, 
and the numbers, everyone's like, you've got to use your advanced stats. Everyone's making the case for Jokic based on defensive plus minus and warps and schnorps and all that. How about I just make the case by 27, 14, and 8 on 57% shootings? Everyone understand that? You don't need to understand the warps and schnorps to understand 27, 14, and 8 on 57% shooting. That's easy. That's like, no, that's like almost an unprecedented stat line. No, I mean, the guy is better than when he won the MVP. Like, that's amazing. And you mentioned Giannis, and, like, sometimes you just get bored of the greatness. Like, you know, it's the same with Jordan not winning it every year uh, during his heyday, right? Like, you get a little bit bored, and people vote for different people. And so I just think, like, you know, I like DeRozan to me, I, I just – I, I just can't get past how great he's been. I'm not saying I would vote for him because it's a season long thing. And, you know, we're not, you know, quite there, but, you know, Embiid, Jokic, Giannis, and I'm going to throw DeRozan in to me, you just, you got to go on this year. And I just, when I look at Jokic, like Murray is so good and Porter's an outstanding offensive player. Like I, I don't know how pe- why people try to de- – if you want to vote for Embiid, have at it. But please don't try to diminish what Jokic has accomplished. I, I mean, the guy is just absolutely mesmerizing with what a talent he is on offense. Yeah, Embiid – I may end up voting for Embiid. I think it's really close. And, and as you said, the season isn't over. Philly may get the one seed and Denver may be in the play-in and Jokic might slump and Embiid might shoot 65% with Harden feeding him. We, we just don't know. And yeah, I, mean, I, well, I, I like you. Uh, I don't care what the seeds are. I'm going to use my eyes and stats. Like who you play with and who you play against is not a great barometer for like, you know, like, so you, you might have better team success, but what does that really mean? Like, I mean, I, I think with all-star participation, like I want to have a cutoff of, rewarding winning when it's close but in this sort of thing to me it's like a lot of your team success is based on obviously how well you play but also who you're playing with and who you're playing against at that time Uh, I I just think you know these are not easy decisions and you're not wrong I just I don't when you start getting into these oh he definitely deserves it there are no definites in this MVP race well the thing that the thing there are two things that make me annoyed about the well you know the the history says you have to finish in the top two in your conference to win the mvp there are two things with the exception of russ and that's because russ averages triple double okay number one well yeah the history says that has anyone bothered to interrogate whether that's actually a good idea like just because the history history says a lot of things we used to do a lot of things and now we do a lot of things differently I was, I didn't, my parents didn't put me in a car seat when I was a kid because no one had car seats and it turns out that was stupid. Number two, yeah, Russ averaged a triple-double. Really, like no one had done that since 1962. A historically significant thing. Is a triple-double that much more historically significant than a center putting up 27, 14, and 8? Like, do the two assists make that much of a difference that, okay, for that, it was cool to make an exception. I understand Durant left and it was a big season. For that, 
that we're fine with that exception for this. Well, of course, the Nuggets are six. You can't win MVP. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't want to get to it. I don't, I'm done with the MVP. And the name we haven't mentioned is going to come up now. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Big question number six. The Memphis Grizzlies. Oh, what a cute upstart team. Okay, now they're not just cute. They're really good. They're tough. They're ferocious. They talk trash in LeBron's face and annoy him. They're really good. Boy, they could win a round in the playoffs. Oh, my God. 41-19. and 19. Two games behind the Warriors for the number two seed with a much easier schedule for the rest of the season. They are fifth in offense. Think about that. Fifth in offense, despite the fact that they don't shoot threes and they really can't shoot that well from anywhere based on the numbers. Eighth on defense. Fifth in net rating with a decent chance to catch the Warriors for number two as long as Draymond Green is out. So the simple question is this. We talk about this team. Cute, young, upstarts. Okay, ferocious, really good. Jeff Van Gundy. Can the Grizzlies just flat out win the championship? What was so interesting about their season is they started out so horrifically defensively. Then they lose Morant and they find their way and they win without Morant. And then when Morant comes back, they continue to win at an unbelievable pace. And then I think Morant set out a game just recently. I think it was a road game in New Orleans and they win that game. I mean, these guys are just really good, and they've got great depth. But I don't even know who their second best – who you would call their second best player. Like, they have a bunch of guys that play well. Morant's clearly, like, this dominant player personality, uh, leader. Um, and then they have a bunch of guys that just fit together very well. Uh, it's, it's truly – to me, out of left field, like like how they could have started so bad defensively and now be so good defensively. So a couple of things. They are 2-1 and one against the Warriors so far, so they're going to win the tiebreak in the event that those teams are tied head-to-head because even if the Warriors win the last game, the next tiebreak is, get ready for this, division winner which is so anachronistic and stupid but it's still a tiebreak and the Grizzlies will win their division the Warriors unless they catch the Suns will not win theirs I think there are again 41 and 19 it it's it's crazy how good they are if you're skeptical of them in the playoffs I think there are two reasons and I want to run both of them by you number one they're young 
And it's rare for a team to go from, we've won one playoff game together against Utah last year in the first round. Now, you could count those play-in games if you want. Like, those were high-stakes games. At Warriors, to win the play-in tournament was an awesome, awesome game. But one actual playoff game. It's very rare to see a team go from that to like, oh, we're suddenly in the finals or 3-3 in the conference finals. Do you buy that rationale for some light Memphis skepticism? I mean, no, I don't, I don't buy young. I buy okay. bad. Like when a team's good, they're good. And I just, like, I'm a little bit more, con- like if I was like, and I'm not skeptical on, on Memphis, but if I was, it's, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr., is he going to, like, which – like, where is he at? Is he going to be a dominant second-best player? Is he going to be inconsistent up and down in his offensive production? Um, you know, Bain, I, I – like, what a great draft choice. Ooh. What a terrific player. Um, you know, is he a guy who can – and I think he can get it done in, in playoffs when teams are concentrating on him. You know, Melton, it, it, you know, what does he bring? Like, it's not the youth. It's can they score well enough in Morant's minutes off the floor in the playoffs? And where are they going to go uh, with the ball? I, I think I, you're, you're hitting on it about can they score enough in the playoffs. First of all, Jaron Jackson, for his greatest season as he's having defensively, 41% overall, 32% on threes, 48% on twos. That's just not going to be good enough, particularly for this reason. I think if you are, if you, if you think the Grizzlies are still not quite there, the reason would be that a lot of the reasons they are sick, I'm not saying this is true, but I think this idea is worth looking at. A lot of the things that are driving their success are things that will not vanish but will be more limited in the playoffs than they are in the regular season. So they're really dependent on forcing turnovers for their offense, and they're really dependent on offensive rebounding. They're the number one offensive rebounding team in the league. And you could make the argument that, well, they're going to face better opposition, the game is going to slow down. At the very least, the opponent turnovers that are fueling all these Harlem Globetrotters fast breaks that they're getting every game. And they're the greatest show. John Morant is the greatest show in the NBA right now by himself. A lot of that stuff will come down. Teams will be more prepared for their offensive rebounding. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Steven Adams is just a monster offensive rebounder. And then their lack of outside shooting. They've, they've, they've made them – how they're fifth on offense, and they're not, again, shooting well. Even their floaters, they're like the floater kings of the NBA. They're like 15th in field goal percentage from floater range. They, that, that offense that's fifth, I think, in the playoffs, it will be very interesting to see – how it performs. That's the, the sort of all the stuff that they're excellent at in the regular season. If they're merely pretty good at that in the playoffs, I think they take a big hit. Well, I, I think that is the question. I, I, I think, you know, offensive things change in the playoffs. It's not the exact same game, but I do think offensive rebounding can hold up. Now it's always the trade-off between staying big and keeping, you know, more size on the floor, more rebounding than limited perimeter shooting, or do you add more shooting in the playoffs and take off an offensive rebounder? I think those choices are often challenging 
And there's a give and take. You, 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 can't, you can't try to be everything. And so it'll be interesting what Taylor Jenkins, who, by the way, like when you mentioned coach of the year, he's certainly got to be in that mix. Oh, but this I'm is going to be an especially brutal coach of the year. Last year was a two-man, you know, close race between Monty Williams and, and Tom Thibodeau. I voted for Monty, but you could have made the argument for any of them. I mean, you talked – we've already talked about Billy Donovan, Eric Spolstra, Taylor Jenkins – and and I have I've had people ask me, and I've also had the same question. I've asked the same question to other people, as someone who voted for him last year, and and he didn't win. Look, why is Monty Williams not the coach of the year? I mean, I'm not. I don't know who I'm voting for, but they're they Phoenix is so far ahead of everybody else. And last year he didn't win because I think there was this notion that well they've taken on Chris Paul's identity. They're a Chris Paul team, and Chris Paul got a lot of credit and deserved a lot of credit for how good Phoenix was. I don't think Monty Williams got enough credit. And and he got credit for me. I voted for him. And this year, it's this funny thing where like, well, they're already good and they're really good again. So it's not surprising. Yeah, they're better than we expected them to be coming off this finals run that, by the way, a lot of people denigrated as a fluke because of injuries to Kawhi Leonard and Jamal Murray and the Lakers, Anthony Davis, and on and on. So there was a little minor skepticism that the Suns were actually this good, and now they're blowing away the entire league. Like he should, he should be right at the forefront of this entire discussion. Absolutely, and I think people that haven't gone through losing in the finals don't understand, like the usual hangover you get to start the next season and that they've been able to avoid that and play, you know, really good basketball, really consistent basketball, really good at both ends, doing it their own way. They shoot a ton of mid range shots. Don't get a ton of layups. You know, I mean, they, they do it their own way. And, and for him to forge their own style that maximizes their talent um, you know, and yeah, he's not a self-promoter at all. So he's not going to ever take credit. That's why we who, who look and cover the media shouldn't fall prey to that and, and get, he should get the credit. I think this guy is going to be in the hall of fame one day. I really do, uh, for his coaching. And, um, I, I also think he is a spectacular person, leader, um, so I agree with you. He should definitely be in that consideration. They're so far ahead of everybody. Seven games in the loss column ahead of the Warriors. 11 games in the loss column ahead of anyone in the East. That Chris Paul is going to be out for six to eight weeks and everyone's like, eh, he'll be fine for the playoffs. It doesn't even matter. And he played in the All-Star game with the cast and nobody, I wanted to usher him off the floor. Chris, get off the floor. What are you doing, man? I got to say, I didn't understand that. I didn't watch the game, but when I read that he was out for six to eight weeks and then played in the All-Star game, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't quite get that. My last of my seven big questions is related to the All-Star game. By the way, John Morant deserves to be uh, in the MVP, you know, four or five conversation as well. Memphis, last thing on Memphis, to, to the general point, 22nd in half-court offense, according to Cleaning Glass, 16th after opponent baskets, 
the number one transition offense in terms of how many transition opportunities they get. And I'm not saying those things disappear in the playoffs. I think the Memphis Grizzlies are awesome. And if they're if I wake up and they're in the conference finals, I'm not going to be that surprised. I just think it'll be interesting to see how their offense adapts. Last question, um, All-Star related. Should the Elam ending with the target score that they use in the All-Star game, you know what I'm talking about, Coach? Oh, yeah. Should, should, should that just be the way basketball is played? I'd like to walk the fine line between traditional and change, right? And so that the clock would shut off at, what, four minutes? Like, you know, you sort of get away from time and score, which is really the essence of intelligent basketball. I don't love that idea, but then I counterbalance that with, timeouts and fouls and you know just prolonging the agony of some of these games and I'm all in on the Elon Mindy to have a game winner every single game I mean that's phenomenal I mean it's a phenomenal thought by whoever Mr. Elam is Nick Elam yeah I don't know who he is but I don't even know what the formula is but I love the idea. I, I do. And so I would love to see it in a G League, you know, for a season to see if maybe having game winners every game isn't a great thing. Maybe it takes away from the game winner that is a little bit more rare. I don't know. But I love the concept of taking out fouling when down. I, I think – it's an eyesore to our great game. And there are other ways you can discourage that or take that away. But the net effect of those other ways, like letting the foul team pick anyone to shoot the free throws or just be acting like as if the foul didn't happen and you get to take the ball out again, those make it harder to come back. And so they sort of just, they, they, they depress right. the likelihood of a comeback. You know, um, I like just to throw in there as a rule, I want to go back in time to the old three to make two. After a certain foul, like, like I don't know, so fives to the uh, to the penalty. Let's go like eight or nine to the you know three to make two. Um, but again, I don't want to make free throw shooting a bigger part of the game. I think it's boring. I think it's watching like extra points in football. Um, we need more action, and I, I love the idea of finding a way like the Elam Indy to eliminate the need to come back has to relate to fouling late. I, I'm i with you. To me, and I haven't checked in on this in a couple of years because whatever, but it's a no-brainer to use it in the G League. Do it next season for the whole season. See how it goes. It's, it's, it's awesome to watch. And – I was – you didn't watch the All-Star game. So we had this – we were on the verge. So LeBron hits a game winner to hit the target score. I believe LeBron's team was two points from the target score. And Durant's team was three points from the target score. I was rooting for Durant's team to get a stop because one of the – not flaws, but one of the points of curiosity with the Elam ending is exactly that situation. I'm on defense and I'm one or two points from the end of the game. You're on offense, and you're three points from the end of the game. The math says I should probably just foul you before you can get a three-point shot up so that I get the ball back 
with a chance to hit the target score. And you can't foul me because I'm one or two points away. I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. It's just a feature or a bug of how it works. And I was, if they had gotten a stop, I was curious to see if uh, Durant's team, or I'm sorry, LeBron's team would have gone that route. But I'm, I, I've yet to watch, and I haven't watched the whole basketball tournament, the basketball tournament where they use this, but I've yet to watch an Elam ending game where I'm like, oh, that was kind of disappointing. It's fun, like pretty much every time. I have watched uh, some of the basketball tournament games, and it's really fun. And, you know, you don't want to diminish the first 44 minutes, and I don't think the Elam ending does that. I, so I think it's hard to find and create a system that – I mean, think about what we're talking about. Like 10 years ago, if you would have said, hey, you want to end an NBA game like this? Like there would have been a, a raucous chorus of, are you crazies? Now, I think it's good. I, I think change for the NBA is a good thing. I think we have to constantly be looking at how can we make our game uh, better? And so um, I, I just think, again, I, I don't think it'll happen. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't. I'm pro using it in the G League, and I'm pro using it if Adam Silver ever gets his wish and we get this midseason soccer-style tournament. Use it there. Like, that's going to be its own separate thing. You get your own banner, your own trophy for it. Let's make that a place where, yeah, the rules are a little different for this. Let's use the Elam ending for that. I don't love the midseason tournament anyway, but let's, let's have fun with it. Okay, I agree with you. I still don't understand the midseason tournament. Use the Elam ending if it comes, if, if we follow through with it. But you said banner. If any team puts a banner up for winning some innocuous midseason tournament, they should face soccer style regular, uh, re- what's it called? Relegation. Relegation to the G League. Literally, the moment you put a banner up, you go down. And the G League champion replaces you in yeah, the NBA whatever, for the however, next season? However you want to do it. You don't even have to be replaced. If, we'll just go with one less team. I don't care. You put up a banner for winning. I don't even know what they're going to call it. It'll probably be sponsored, you know, like some sponsored thing. You know, like, come on, man. The Poulian Weed Eater, David J. Stern. Remember the Poulian Weed Eater Bowl? That was my favorite crazy sponsorship. The Poulian Weed Eater Independence Bowl or something like that. The Poulian Weed Eater, David J. Stern Cup. I do believe we should, we should have a major award. And I'm not a huge Stern fan, nor he was he a huge fan of mine. But I think David Stern deserves an award name. I would do it for the championship trophy. I would do the O'Brien Stern Trophy or just go with the Stern Trophy because things change. Um, But that's just me. But please, don't devalue his name and his impact on the NBA by giving the title trophy of some tournament, in-season tournament, to to, put his name on that. Oh, my goodness. Coach Jeff Van Gundy, second to none. I look forward to you on the next big broadcast. I, I can't believe you take any time to come on this dumb podcast, but your insight is, is second to none. Thank you for joining us today. All right. Take care. Right. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.